Well, so Glenn, you and I are here today just on an impromptu get together to talk about Wolfram's theories and um, just the whole idea of what is reality and what is computation and how those things all fit together. And I have lots of questions, but I also know you had some ideas that you wanted to talk about. So, yeah, well, there's been several of your um, video uh, conversations, which also touch on the same subject. So it seems like you're, you're into the information and uh, way of thinking. And then there was that interesting uh, music uh, video, that quirky one. Oh yeah, and Chris, Chris Petkow, he's doing some fascinating things. He's got, yeah. he's got this really interesting artistic eye and also musical. And for me, one of the th interesting things that happens when I watch some of his um, little art pieces is that because my my right brain gets distracted with with all the visual and auditory elements that are going on, mm -hmm. somehow my left brain is weaving the ideas, the intellectual ideas in a different way than it does when I'm just reading or just listening to a, an academic video. Yeah, it's, it's like the music catalyzes a way of thinking or something. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I, was... I, I used to notice that with my art, when I'm doing art, I like to put on something very academic, because that mm -hmm. keeps my left brain occupied. So it doesn't get in my way. Mm -hmm. And leaves my right hemisphere free to just kind of get into a flow state. But it works the other way, too. And that would have never occurred to me, if I hadn't watched his video. <laughs> well, I really liked his title, you know, uh, a symphony of choices over time. I think that almost perfectly grasp, you know, gets what I've been trying to get at. And he did a better job of it than I did. But I posted a comment there that really got me thinking about how we use language. And it, it's it's too long to, to post there, but I thought I wanted to just touch base here. Because um, we're talking about how a collection of, of instruments each playing their own fixed piece of sheet music, mm -hmm. um, which you can actually consider a kind of form of computation. And, you know, a, a set of choices over time governed by a set of rules. But somehow all of these instruments come together to make a symphony. Something new comes out of a whole collection of simple things. And I, I, I like that, that word symphony because it implies a more emotional, there's something richer there um, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, which is the, the hallmark of emergence or strong emergence. Mm -hmm. And I made a remark um, that in physics, we have language to talk about complexity, but we don't really have the words to talk about things that are simple. Um, and so the content, uh, the ideas of choice and, and computation I struggle to put them into words because in some ways it's very subtle, um, kind of a deep um, way of thinking. You've got to get into it. You can't just put it into words. And then I thought that might be an example of your reducible versus irreducible. When you can easily put things into words, that might be an indicator that you're dealing with something that's reducible. Mm -hmm. When you run into a situation where you you struggle for the words. 
maybe that's an indication that you've, you're bumping into the irreducible. And then I thought, that's the purpose of the parables, uh, the Jungian archetypes, or in Buddhism would be the koans. It's a way to put into words something that you can't otherwise just describe. And so I thought, and the flip side of irreducible is transcendent. Mm -hmm. So I could bounce those ideas. And, you know, I'm just thinking out loud on these, but I thought the connections were interesting. Well, so I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your idea of the, the symphony. And um, I also like the title that Chris had chosen, a symphony of choices over time, because one of the things I've been, okay, let me start by saying one of the things that I like about Wolfram's whole theory mm-hmm. is not that I think that the universe is actually constructed that way. It could be, but I mean, that's not, that's not why I'm interested in it. I'm interested yeah. in it because the way he talks about the model gives me language to think about a lot of the other things that I've been thinking about. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of overlaps, a significant number of overlaps. So example, when you just said a symphony of choices over time, several things occur to me. One is I've also been reading Matthew Peugeot's book, Uh, the language of creation. And in there, he has some very interesting ideas about the nature of space and time from a biblical perspective that kind of fold into what Wolfram is talking about in terms of the nature of space and time and model. And and the second thing is that um, time and choice play with each other in Wolfram's model. Okay. And yeah. uh, let me just play something for you. Um, I'm hearing some feedback from something kind of knocking around on your side. Is there, is there anything is touching it, is anything? It like the chair I'm sitting in? Oh, no, I, I don't know. Okay. Maybe, 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 but um there's two different places where he talks about choice and time. Let me just play a couple of uh, a couple of clips here. And it is Wolfram. No, I think it's on this one. Yeah, so just a minute. I got to stop share here and get the sharing thing right. I always forget to share sound. Okay. Now we got it. Okay. So what, what, what it says is just do this, apply this rule wherever you feel like. And what, what is n- extremely non-trivial is, well, okay, so, so this is happening sort of in, in computer science terms sort of asynchronously. You're just doing it wherever, wherever you feel like doing it. And the only constraint is that if you're going to apply the rule somewhere, the, the things to which you apply the rule, the, the little you know, elements to which you apply the rule, if they, if they have to be 
Okay, well, you can think of each application of the rule as being kind of an event that happens in the universe. Yep. And these, the input to an event has to be ready for the event to occur. That is, if one event occurred, if one transformation occurred, and it produced a particular atom of space, then that atom of space has to already exist before another uh, transformation that's going to apply to that atom of space can occur. So yeah, so that's like the prerequisite for the event. That's right. Exist. That's right. So it, 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 that defines a kind of uh, this sort of set of causal relationships between events. It says this event has to have happened before this event. Right. But that is. Um, but that's that's not a very limiting constraint. No, it's that's, not. And what's it's still you still get the zillion. Uh, that's a technical yeah, well, term. <laughs> options. That's correct. But, but okay, so th this is where things get a little bit more elaborate. But, but, but they're mind-blowing, so... <laughs> right, but so, so what, what, what happens is, so the first thing you might say is, you know, let's... Well, okay, so, so this question about the freedom of which, which event yeah. you do when. Well, let me, let me sort of state an answer and then explain it, okay? <laughs> the, the, um, the validity of special relativity is a consequence of the fact that in some sense it doesn't matter in what order you do these underlying things, so long as they respect this kind of set of causal relationships. So and that's that's uh, in a, the the part. So I'm going to stop here for a second and ask you a question about that. When he's talking about causal invariance, and he says it doesn't matter in which order you do these things, as long as you respect the order of causal relationships. Who is the respecter there? <laughs> He's not, I mean, many times he doesn't, he, uh, many times he, so I wrote down a few places where he's inconsistent because sometimes he talks as though the, in one of his videos, he says, you know, if there is a creator who started all of this, he doesn't deserve any special credit because he could have picked any rule and the universe would have come out of that. But then other times he talks like this, where he says, um, it doesn't matter in what order you do this updating, as long as you respect the order of the, this causal order of causal relationships. Mm -hmm. So who's doing the respecting? And, and if, if there is some entity doing the respecting of this order of causal relationships, then that certainly means an entity that is computationally irreducible to us, a transcendent being of unimaginable scope. Not necessarily, but you're, you're still, you know, okay, you're in the so right not direction. Not necessarily, so tell me, how could that not necessarily be? Um, the, the, one of the fundamentals of his thinking is that a few simple rules can give mm -hmm. rise to an infinite levels of complexity, mm -hmm. but he never explains how that happens. Somewhere in there, there has to be a computer running the rules. And, and that's where I, I, I just, I don't, I don't know, disagreement is, is a harsh word, but I think he's missing some pieces. His, his math, he's not doing his mathematical due diligence as he's well, developing his theory. Okay, but let me say this. In some places he says, well, first of all, he says it's it's running all possible rules in all possible ways that those rules could run. Mm -hmm. 
And in other places, he talks about one simple rule. Okay, so that's one area. Another thing he talks about is that sometimes he talks about the universe itself being a Turing machine. And other places he talks about all possible Turing machines running all possible rules. Yeah. But but he in the most recent one I listened to, he talks about he 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 was putting out a thought experiment, a thought bubble to Lex Friedman. And he's and he was talking about what if it what if it were just one simple Turing machine running around updating wherever the up, wherever the input is ready, mm -hmm. the update happens. And uh, and for those of us who are observers, the reason that we don't see anything off about that is that until we're updated, we can't observe the other updates that have been done. So we're always, whenever we're updated, everything has already been updated around us. So it all looks perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. When he talked about that very simple Turing machine just running around doing all the updating, that made me think about, I think it was Feynman that had the idea of just one photon that's the whole... I'm not sure it was Feynman, but yeah, that was floating around years ago. Yeah. There's one electron and it's just going back and forth in time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so other times he doesn't say the universe is a Turing machine. He just says the universe is computational. Mm -hmm. So if it's just computational, then it needs something to run on. Right. But if it is the, the if it is the computer itself in his, in his thinking, right. <clears throat> then it doesn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> so to answer your questions, you know, <laughs> Well, I, I have to dive into his math and start from scratch. And I haven't, that's still a task ahead of me. Um, you know, if you find disagreement in somebody's arguments, you know, your first obligation is to go in and try and steal man their arguments, try and fix mm -hmm. what you think is wrong. Or in some sense, you know, he's obviously more brilliant than I am. So I need to go in and spend time trying to see things the way he sees them so I can figure out why I'm seeing something different. But the stumbling block for me is nowhere is it discussed what is doing the computation. <clears throat> Before a computation or the, the rules sets or anything can take on a physical reality, there has to be a computational, physical computational system that's playing by the rules and generating the, the output. And so I, I would go back and I say, okay, where in your theory, it should be right, right from the very beginning, there should be some way to create that computate the physical computational structure, which means atoms and molecules or, and so, and his theory sort of just leapfrogs past that up into a very complex area. Well, he starts out by saying that, <clears throat> space is just composed of atoms of space and those atoms of space are that that's all there is there there is no matter except those atoms of space and we are all part of that structure and that all starts out with one very simple relationship of <clears throat> atoms of space <clears throat> this you know like one point mm -hmm. and then from that 
all of space begins to grow. So uh, space is at a certain, at, in, at any given point in the causal relationships of what he calls time, then space has a certain size. Space continues to expand, 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 which mm -hmm. is the expanse of space over time. The expanse of space through updating events is what he calls time. And it's what leads the, the arrow. He, he talked about the arrow of cosmological time being the being related to entropy and the expansion of space. And that's why there's an arrow of cosmological time. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I feel like he's gotten ahead of himself. Because before, <laughs> two, before any two atoms of space can talk to each other, there, there has to be a rule set that governs that conversation. So every atom of space has to be, in some sense, a state machine. And then atoms, molecules, everything can be uh, envisioned as a cellular automaton that live on that fabric of space and time. That's, I think, the missing element. And if he goes there, then that really constrains his thinking a lot and gets it back down to something that looks more like physical reality. I think that's, that's a hard one to communicate, I think, mm -hmm. because I've sort of lived with it, with the Maxwell's demon problem. And it finally sunk in with dealing with Maxwell's demon that if you want to answer that satisfactorily in physics, you have to somehow include the demon into the physics of the whole problem. And then you have to ask, well, where does the demon come from? And what makes the demon? And that's the kind of the place where I think words run out. The, the, the textbook stuff we learn in physics, the equations, the definitions all of a sudden don't really work at that level. What do you mean by information? There's, there's no good useful definition for that actually. Um, what do you mean by observation in physics? Because every measurement that we make of our world around us is, involves quantum mechanics. And so the whole very notion of um, measurement uh, observation is a quantum mechanical problem. And as yet there is no satisfactory answer as what measurement is in quantum mechanics either. So um, I think that's what I see when I look at Stephen Wolfram's stuff is that there's this background of fundamental questions I bring with me and I'm, I'm looking for okay, where do these come into your theory, Stephen? And it is, I don't see them popping up. And then it leaves me feeling a little bit uh, uneasy, like things aren't quite complete yet. There's parts missing. So hopefully that makes sense. Well, yeah, it does. Um, but if I could get back to this whole thing about the... So what I'm hearing you say is that you feel uncomfortable um talking about the complexities of the theory without the theory having a, a foundational a good grounding that I'm, I'm confident about okay but but still let me ask you this question <laughs> okay. um in in the video that he does on uh how universal are numbers i don't know if you watch that one but 
he's talking to a bunch of mathematicians about whether numbers are a, f- a function of the way the universe is set up or whether they're just a function of the way that we observe our particular slice of the universe. And mm. <clears throat> is there a difference? Yes, in his, I mean, in his, in his, in his thinking, yeah. in his thinking, there is, because, well, let me tell you what he said. He said, um, when the the particular slice that we look at that makes time happen for us is that we are looking at a causal chain. We're looking at a chain of events that's moving through the universe. Um, one thing happens before another thing, you know, and then another thing happens after that thing and something can't happen until it's until the updating has been done so that it's Mm -hmm. prepared for the next move. Um, It's kind of like what you and I were talking about the difference between thinking of our future as a series of branching events or whether thinking about our future as being more like a vine that can divide and merge again, Mm -hmm. right? So we observe, we imagine time to be a certain way because of the way we observe that chain of causal events. And and in a sense, and Jonathan Gorard talks about this too, that each observer has a unique perspective of this thing because because the slice that they're seeing is slightly different than any other observer. So what, but what he went on to say was that what you need to turn a sequence into time is that choice. What series of slices of events will be considered to be simultaneous in order to make this a chain rather than just a, a, a graph of random events what series of those events are you going to choose to look at? And then, and then the, the guy who had asked him the question said, that's a deeply Kantian statement. <laughs> and then Wolfram said, you know, I have to confess, I haven't read enough philosophy. I need to go back and read more philosophy. <laughs> I tried to read Kant when I was in college and I gave up. He seems, he takes a book to say what, I think you could say in like two or three paragraphs. Uh-huh. Well, I've never read Kant, so I wouldn't have any idea. But my my note on this was that this seems to imply that time that in his perspective, time is a function of a consciousness that chooses a particular thread of events. Um I'll buy that. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that just seems to me to be what he's saying. I don't know, I don't know how you can get out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that he said that I thought was so interesting, maybe I should play this. Um, it's in the numbers one and it's at 141.25. Um, I don't know why I'm so bad at this. <laughs> It's uh, how universal are numbers, 141.25. There's so many, you know, the thing about, the thing that makes him so captivating to listen to is he's got so much output. 
<laughs> you could spend your whole life listening to this guy. Well, I sort of have a blank screen right now, so. Oh, I wonder why. Huh. So you're not seeing this. No, I see a, a menu bar on the side for font and spacing, but that's it. Oh, so somehow, let's stop sharing and share again. Is that better? Yeah, got it now. Okay. I don't know why it did that. I think sometimes if there's some documents up that they, they're masking something. But now I... Now this is a dead video. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. Yeah, I, I watched part of this and then I realized that I need to go back and do my homework. Because um, my exposure to uh, introduction of arithmetic out of set theory and math logic, I, I need to correlate what he's doing with how I learned it in the textbooks. Because you start with, set, you know, math logic and then set theory and then you you get to numbers and arithmetic. And then, then you get to a girl's incompleteness theorem. So, but numbers don't just appear. They, there are several steps into the abstract creation of the, the world of mathematics. So I need to go back and figure out how that works into his theory or how his thinking correlates, like I say, with what I got from my textbooks. Years well, this, ago. this particular video is three hours long, so yeah. <laughs> I have to get ready to slog. But I, so I can't get the video to play, but here's what he says. I'll just read the transcript. Um, he's talking about uh, doing proofs in mathematics. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is sort of a minimalist version of proving. So there's an axiom system here. It defines a bunch of relations and we're proving a theorem. This is the proof of the theorem. It's this path from one expression to another. So we can imagine there can be multiple proofs of this theorem, this story of sort of all, you know, given axiom systems, we're defining a set of rules for transforming expressions or equivalent, equivalently transforming propositions from ones that are equivalent. That defines this network. And so this network is actually one of these multi-way graphs just the same as the kind of thing that we're talking about in physics. And here's my speculation. I'm not sure it's quite right, but so a proof is a path in this graph. Mm -hmm. Say that this is equal to, there's a proof of that which corresponds to this path. So one way you can find out what's equal to what is by just explicitly finding these, path, these parts that sort of are a proof theoretic way to do it. Another thing you could do is to imagine foliating this graph, making something that is like a reference frame where you make this graph in layers. And then this question is, is this thing connected to this other thing? Becomes a question of sort of looking at what layers it's in. So in a sense, what that's doing is the claim, the claim would be the reference frame in the multi-way graph corresponding to the models of model theory. So what I get out of this is that, that he is saying that, I mean, because I have a very simple mind. So to me, this is just saying the, the proof is the path. So, so 
the path that we take in life, in a sense, proves whether or not we are on the correct path. <laughs> right? So yeah. you, you take a certain path, and at the end of the path, if you end up in the place where you had hoped to be, then you have proved mm -hmm. the, your original intention. I mean, in another way, you could say faith is the substance of things hoped for. Yeah. You have a hope, and at the end of it, there's a substance, and, and faith gets you from one to the other. And if you get there, then you have, you have faith because mm -hmm. you arrived at the substance of the thing that you were hoping for. And that's the same way as... Uh, now... Is that necessarily the way that people look at mathematical proofs or is that, a, is he looking at it in a new way? No, that's standard that uh, you can, you can see a chain of, of statements and, and rules for making new statements from old statements. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's classic math logic. Um, but what I noticed was as soon as he uses the term layers, He's introduced 3D world into the, the problem. At the level he's working at, there is no three-dimensional space time. Oh, and no, so, I, I think he is talking about three-dimensional. Yeah, but that, not, at that level of using, mathematics. He's he not using any, cellular automata. No, but to imagine that these chains are taking place in layers and then try and visualize it that way. You've already brought something into the math, which isn't really in the math yet. Oh, I see what you're saying. Just mathematically. Yeah, so a lot of but, his but work inside is- Inside his head, inside his head. That's there, how he's visualizing it. Yeah, because when he talks about this issue of causal invariance, and he did that a lot in the, in the Lex Friedman number 124, when he talks about the, the multi-way ruleal graph of, um, at implementing all possible rules in all possible ways mm -hmm. at every updating event that that's happening all the time all possible rules are being applied in all possible ways at every updating event which produces this universe of obviously infinite complexity but because of his picture of causal invariance any observer within and all observers are within the system that's the key thing any observer within that system has a choice of what foliation or what layer or mm -hmm. what um slice of that system that they're going to see and so they're they're basically choosing their own timeline they're choosing their own picture of how this universe functions. But because of causal invariance, if you take all of those observers together and put all these layers back together, what you have is this universe, which made me think, because I have a very simple mind, it made me think back to the, the very first conversation I ever had with uh, Paul Vanderclay when I was saying to him, that it looked to me with my very pea brain that every domain of knowledge, let's say chemistry or biology or physics 
has an internal consistency within its own domain. And in the universe, there's also an infinite amount more that could be said about that domain of knowledge that can be discovered out there in the universe. So in a sense, each of them is a complete picture, but, but they actually all stack up together to make, make another complete picture. They're, they're all yeah. united. And, and that's kind of what I hear him saying is that physics looks at a certain slice of this multi-way graph and biology looks at a different slice of it. And as humans, we're looking at the, the slice of it that makes sense to us in trying to live our lives. Mm. <laughs> well, I can't quite go there yet with you, but um, there's a, um, the mathematician in me is, is, needs to go back and, and fill in the hole, so to speak. Um, Stephen Wolfram is really a physicist. I really get that sense. He does a lot of computation, but he thinks like a physicist. And there's kind of a, a joke way to look at it is a physicist uses mathematics. It's like watching someone pounding nails with a crescent wrench. If you get a big enough crescent wrench and you practice, you can do okay with it, but it's not the right tool for the job. Uh, physicists get away with a lot of bad mathematics because the intuition saves them. Somehow the physicists tend to have an intuition that gets them past all of the bad mathematics so that they end up with a good answer in the end anyway. So I'm not gonna come out and say that I think Stephen's wrong or right. I just, there's a lot of missing pieces in there that the mathematician in me is not, wants to, to fix mm -hmm. and make sense of before I come back and give you a, um, an answer on, on these kind of questions. Well, so do you know what a, an infinity groupoid is? Not right off. Oh, um, okay. Because at one point in one of his conversations, he says that one of the things that he had discovered was that his, the picture that his theory draws of the universe is identical to, um, I forget the guy's name, some very complicated Dutch name, I think. Grothenstein? Gr something like that. Um, his infinity groupoid. Mm -hmm. But then in other places, I mean, he talks a lot about how he doesn't know much about category theory. He doesn't know much about set theory. And so I thought those were all things that mathematicians had some sort of a handle on at least. So... Yeah, I have textbooks on all that stuff sitting on my shelf that have been collecting dust for like 20 or 30 years. So I need, <laughs> I, I know it's out there, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm not ready to, to dive or say anything. I think there's too much, too much inside every domain of knowledge for anybody to have even a tiny speck of it inside their own brains. Well, one thing that I, that, that worries me about Stephen is I think he's he's launched with a good idea. There's a there's a solid foundation somewhere in there. He's made an oversight that physics has been making since at least maybe the 50s and and uh, the original electroweak theory, and it's really come home now with string theory. And I wanted to to pass that by you. Um, that when they 
bring two theories together when they you know unite electromagnetism and the, the weak nuclear force. That was, you know, these aren't necessarily my ideas. I've picked them up along the way and it's probably happened before, but to, to create, take two mathematical models and then create a greater mathematical model that contains the two together, you always end up making a more complex mathematical system that's now complex enough to contain each like electromagnetism and electro, you know, the weak nuclear as special cases. But whenever you do that mathematically, you end up with a whole bunch of other possibilities or maybe an infinite number of solutions besides the ones you want. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of the electro weak, and then the same pattern happens with the, the standard model, you, you create this overarching Uber theory, mathematical model. Now, how do you dial down to get to the physical reality you want? In those two cases, physics was lucky because the, the variation from one model to the next was based on parameters, numerical parameters, which you could actually go out into, go to the particle accelerator, run experiments. You, you get the numbers experimentally, you put them back into your theory, your mathematical model, and then it dials everything down and you get some pretty good results now. But now you've ended up with these free parameters and then you get into the problem of what they call fine tuning. Is the physics, you have a model like the standard model that is mathematically complex enough to contain the three you know, forces that we know as special cases. But the only way you can get it is by having, um, I think maybe a couple dozen thereabouts, I'm not sure, of these parameters that you have to measure. And then you get it, you dial it in and you get, but every, every time you notice you, 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 when you create an Uber theory by combining simpler theories into a bigger combined theory, you end up with a lot of solutions that you have to figure out how to throw away. And then you get into the problem of fine tuning. Now with string theory, they're in the same boat, but they, the difference between all of the theories is not one of numerical. String theory doesn't make predictions. You can go into the lab and measure and then fine tune your, your theory, but it's all geometric. And so there's no way to collapse string theory down to the reality we want. So you end up with these infinite number of solutions with no way to select out the right ones because there's no string theory doesn't make a prediction. And I think um, Eric, Weinstein, and there's a couple others of names that escaped me. And I think I'm afraid my gut sense is telling me that Stephen Wolfram is kind of falling into the same mistake, that he's enamored by the fact that his modeling, his computer simulations are producing a lot of structures that look like things you see in physics. But in the process, you create a lot of things that maybe aren't. And I would look in his theory, where's the, where's the filtering mechanism that will pull his, his, his theory back to what we see physically in physical reality. And again, I'm not, I'm not picking up where that might be, but then I haven't dove into his theory, so. Well, yeah, it would seem to me that there, that, um, there will always be an easy out on that. Yeah. Because 
because he says, and, and I think this is true, that the universe is fundamentally computationally irreducible. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah. yeah. So if the universe is fundamentally computationally irreducible and the, the slices of it that are computationally reducible are only those slices where we choose particular observations to do that look to us to have predictive possibility. And so we choose those slices and then we confine our investigation in those slices in such a way that we can get pre certain predictions. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's only from our perspective as observers that we're able to find these pockets of computational reducibility. Now, if this were, if we were actually talking about the way the universe is constructed and the computationally irreducible one is the transcendent, mm -hmm. then he's giving us as a gift, I think, this little pocket of irreducibility, of reducibility where we can play around and make discoveries and, and all of that. But, yeah. but, you know, if we're just speaking abstractly, he could always say there's no way to predict where this is going because the universe is fundamentally computationally irreducible. So he doesn't need to have predictive capacity in his theory. Although I think what he's using as his, I think what he's using as normative is this, the discoveries that he's making of where certain other theories fall out of his picture yeah, yeah. By piece. And so he's using those as proofs, so to speak, of, of that he's going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But like I, uh, my, my opinion for what it's worth and is, mm -hmm. is that he's, he's falling into the same trap that physics has been stuck in for the last maybe 70 plus years, that you create this overarching theory, which has a whole bunch of possibilities, mm -hmm. but with some parameters that you can if you pick them just right, then the theory generates the, the outcome you want. Mm -hmm. So he's created this thing that looks a lot like a lot of things in physics. And so he's excited because he's seeing the patterns come out of his theory. Mm -hmm. But he might fall into the same trap that string theory fell into, is that there's no way to select out of all of the possibilities the ones that you want. Mm -hmm. There's no filtering mechanism there. Whereas the alternative is to start, don't try and build the Uber theory, start with something that will grow. And as each layer grow, you know, each layer comes from the layer below. And rather than start from the big picture and try and come back down. And that, that is, um, that's where you get strong emergence or emergence is uh, the observation that simple things can give rise to come a little more complex things. Those complex objects now can now become things, individuals in their own right, which then gives lit, rise to the next layer up. So, so I thought that's what he was doing. So I sort of thought that's why I was enamored with his work uh -huh. at first, but then the uh -huh. more I dive into it, the less that it seems like that's what he's doing. Um, so where do you, where does the disconnect? I don't know. I guess that's my, my homework project for the next no, but I mean, what, what, makes you, what makes you think, so, so if he's starting from one simple rule, 
I mean, his pictures always start with the simple rule up here and it, it goes out like this, but you could as easily say the simple rule is down here and it's growing up this way, right? Simple rule has to give rise to the computational mechanism, which then generates the next rule set. The rule set has to run on some kind of computational system. But once you've got that going, well, okay, so let me ask then you a very get, personal question. You, is it, isn't it okay? Is it okay for me? Maybe it's okay for me because I'm not a physicist. But to me, if you have God, why do you need a computer? God can run the rule any on any any way that he wants. He can run the rule. I know. And so Stephen Wolfram's in the kind of position that, well, the, the universal computer running everything must be God, though he doesn't. He doesn't walk there, but that's sort of implicit in what he's doing. And so you kind of go, uh, Steve, uh, <laughs> but uh, John Archibald Wheeler with his It From Bit, um, which has spawned the whole industry of, of black hole entropy and made the observation that, that information becomes physical when it's observed. And I thought to myself, okay, Steve, you know, you're, I mean, uh, John Wheeler, He's a big atheist. Um, so you're, you, you need a universal observer to make things happen. So isn't that kind of like God? But the physics people don't go there. And it's like others have commented that if you're going to make speculations at fundamental levels in physics, you sort of are obligated at that point to start to take your ideas to their absolute logical conclusion. And so, well, so I think that's why he wants to talk to some the theologians. Mm -hmm. Now, here's one theologian that I found that sounds exactly like Stephen Wolfram. His name is Father Robert Spitzer, and he's in the Society of Jesuits. Uh -huh. And he says, absolute simplicity is power without intrinsic or extrinsic restrictions. And, and then he says, Unrestricted reality is perfect simplicity in perfect unity. Now, to me, that's exactly the picture of, of the beginning of Wolfram's universe, mm -hmm. is unrestricted reality, perfect simplicity in perfect unity. And then he says, nothing is only the result of our reflecting on what is outside the bound of finite reality. Um, yeah, but that's a fundamental question in physics is where did physicists come from? So where did physicists come, come from? from? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's sort of, Stephen's in the same you book. You mean like he you're all aliens? The rule said and everything, but who's doing the observing? What is doing the rule processing? And it's like, He's well, maybe that's something's, why it makes sense something's to me when I listen, because to me, of course, it's God who's who's mm -hmm. you know, to me, of course, you know, I've, I've talked to you before about my one simple rule idea that if the simple rule is love, then every choice at every juncture of every event, the choice is love is is towards love. Mm -hmm. So that's the simple rule that makes the universe, and and it even the picture that he draws of the 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 three. The three elements that are conjoined by three causal edges, mm -hmm. which then at every updating changes, it, or is it one? 
one connected to three, but it but at every updating it switches into the other one. Mm -hmm. um, that looks very much to me like relationship, like the relationship of the Trinity before the beginning of time. And um, but somebody or something has to come along and do the switching. So it's like uh, the DNA strand is is just a memory. It's a magnetic tape. The DNA is it takes the little RNA um, protein molecules to read the memory and then takes that information to create new molecules. So now the, the RNA elements are more state machines. They're, they're like a, a finite state automaton that then read the memory and then the RNA just blindly follows its own internal rules and takes the DNA information and turns it into new proteins. So before well, you have a turning I, machine, there I, has to be state machines. Now I understand where your problem is because you've said before that um, that physical reality, that, that, um, that, a, that a program can instantiate physical reality, mm -hmm. right? So, but that means that we're looking at, we're actually looking at physical reality, but we're looking at phys physical reality that has been instantiated from, uh, you could call it a program, you could call it an idea, you could mm -hmm. call it uh, um, a plan, <laughs> okay, has instantiated physical reality. So in, in Wolfram's picture, he doesn't really have room for um, for information or a plan or a program because everything is just that one simple rule running all the time and mm -hmm. and not really not really instantiating any physical reality i mean like for example um let me see if i can get my screen to share this There is this right here. Can mm -hmm. you see that? Yeah. Okay, so I want to see Wolfram's theory explain where something like this comes from. Right. Right. This is the cellular and molecular processes in our metabolic pathways. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, there so, are obviously some things missing. <laughs> well, that was our original talk about the origins of life is, is can you find a simpler version of that that's non-biological that will, you could bootstrap up from to get there. Um, a lot of the protein folding actually is, um, is a computer without memory. Remember we talked about that, uh, the, the, the parking meter? There are computational systems that don't have memory, uh, the key in the lock. Um, so some of those blindly just follow a set of rules built into them by the way they're constructed. So you take um, a, a dumb computer without memory, which is a finite state machine, and then you give it a memory uh, strip, like the DNA to read, and all of a sudden, if you pick the rules right, 
the thing starts to self-reproduce. To me, that's kind of magic that you can play that game. But um, there, there has to be something in there making the code, which is the, the rules in the DNA and turning it into physical reality so that we can exist, so we can actually sit here and talk about it. There mm -hmm. had to be a whole process happen between the rule set and us. My, that's what I, I sense is missing. Mm -hmm. if, if we yeah, in, his, in this conversation with Lex Friedman, he talks about how, so he talks about how we're just sort of a foam, a little foam that's on top of this whole structure of, of space and time. And, and, and then in another, in one of, so when I was reading um, some stuff about his book, A New Kind of Science, he makes the comment that, that we are not special. Um, I think I actually have a document of that that I could show you. Hmm. Um, somewhere, let me just see if I can find it. Um, and before I forget, one of the other things he talks about a lot is, is the whole knitting of space and time together. That's a fundamental question, I think, that needs to be really worked on. The knitting of space and time together? Right. But, uh, yeah, I can't find it. I must have closed it down. But it's, um, oh, this is that very interesting Schoenfinkel thing, com combinators. <laughs> I've been looking at too many things. But um, I think it's in the Wikipedia thing from uh, yeah it's just blank screen right now for me oh okay i don't know why this isn't showing up but anyway it doesn't really matter um i need to learn how to do all those things um when he's talking about um now i lost my thread what was what were we just talking about his new kind of science mm -hmm. I completely lost the thread. One of the things I've noticed is he, he doesn't want to talk about strong emergence. And I don't know if he does that on purpose because it, it is kind of a, a dicey subject in, in the physics and math realm. Well, has or, somebody asked him about it? I don't know. I have not had the chance to dive into his work that deep. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've listened to lots and lots of Q&As and I haven't heard anybody ask about that. Mm -hmm. Um, in the, in the Q and A's that he does for kids, sometimes they will ask biological questions and then he starts answering. Yeah. And, and when he starts answering these biological questions and I can almost see the wheels moving in his head because as he gets further and he, he's trying, he's trying to answer it in a very simple way about these biological processes. Mm -hmm. And then it gets more and more and more complex as he goes. And you can almost imagine that the wheels are moving up there like 
how did this all really happen? Is this all really just an exact <laughs> accident? You know? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a very interesting guy. I mean, he's very full of himself in a lot of ways. He's always wanting to tell everybody what he's done and what he's discovered. And mm-hmm. I, I tried to watch the episode between Wolfram and um, on the Brian Keating into the impossible between Wolfram and Eric Weinstein Mm -hmm. and Wolfram just won't let Eric Weinstein get a word in edgewise. Yeah. It's really sad, you know, Mm -hmm. because I'd like to hear Weinstein's ideas and then compare them to Wolfram's ideas, but you can't really get there. Yeah. Well, one of these days, maybe. Yeah. One of the, the reasons I think the way I, I do is, is like I said, you know, vocationally, I was a, a hardware designer in Silicon Valley. So my world is very hands-on. It's, it's in silicone, copper, and soldering. Um, I'm, I'm not, that's where I'm more comfortable. There's one great quote. There's uh, Bob Pease was a great uh, analog designer of note. And, and, he always said his favorite programming language was solder. And that's kind of the, the, the world I, <laughs> I fall into. So oh, that tends to guide so why my is thinking. That? Why, why would that be his favorite programming language? Can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, because you don't know how things are going to work until you build it. And there's an old saying that, in theory, theory is a lot like practice, but in practice, it isn't. And I, you know, I've bumped heads many times in design issues is that people will design things on paper and then they'll, and I'll come back and I'll say something like, no, that's not going to work. And they'll go, why? And I'll try and explain. And it's like, and they don't get it. And mm-hmm. one of the observations in, um, the industry over there when I was there is that mm-hmm. you get hired as a hardware designer, not for what you know how to do, but for the 101 ways of, you know, that things won't work. So uh, one of the jokes, I don't know now, cause I've been out of the field, but you could always tell the hardware guy if you went into a startup company, cause he was the, the older guy with the beard. And it, it takes years of working, doing stuff to get the background you need to actually do hardware. And my job is basically was taking notes on scratch paper and then turning them into something that you could actually work and run. And that's, that's where I I've, I've see that pattern of choices over time um, based on a rule set that you can go from ideas and end up with a product that ends up going out for sale. And in my case, I was, I did medical design and medical device stuff for a while. So people will come in with an idea, sometimes doctors and say, well, if we just had something that could do this or that, we could help certain patients. And then I did embedded you know, computers. So if a medical device had, had to have a little embedded processor in it, to make it work, that's where I would come in. And then you get to go in and put on scrubs and actually and see some of your stuff you've designed being used on people. That's It was kind of satisfying to take that route, but 
to me, taking an idea and watching it turn into physical reality is kind of magic and watch the pattern of choices uh, happen. That's what my husband always says too. That's what makes his job so exciting is that he gets to see things come into reality that never would have existed Mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for an idea, right? And then the funny thing I would say, well, at a certain point, the hardware starts to talk to you. It kind of tells you what it wants to be. And then there's the, the idea from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. There's that quality. Somehow we are sensing as we go through the, to the design process, symphony of choices over time, what is it we're picking up on that guides our choices down to something that ends up working? And, and we're picking up on something. I, as an engineer or an artist, a dancer like you, um, uh, people who design the motorcycle, you know, the Honda 305, which is the, the motorcycle from Zen book. What is it they were thinking when the design came together that made it just work? Because I had a 305 when I was younger. And I rode it everywhere for a couple of years and it was a nice solid piece of engineering. Um, there's something going on and, and I often wondered if that's how we experience um, strong emergence, top-down causality. Uh, some of your talks, they talked about when you listen to music or context, we talk about how context is important in understanding things. Mm-hmm. Maybe context is again, top-down uh, causality. There's, we sense something at that irreducible level above us. Even though something is irreducible, we saw it still, and we live in a reducible world below it. We're able to sense that next layer out, and, and it guides us in our thinking. Well, let's take that all the way down to the particle layer, because one of the things that Wolfram said that I thought was probably everybody already knew this, but to me it was kind of a revelation that particles like electrons um, or let's just say quarks mm-hmm. they're all the same all the quarks are the same regardless what what they're in the difference is i think he said the 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 direction the spin and the momentum there are three things that differentiate one quark from another quark well there's color as well Okay, but color doesn't really mean color, color. No, no, no. no. It's just... <laughs> yeah, but but the, the point is, whatever it is that differenti- differentiates one quark from another and how it ends up getting used, maybe used as a too much of an agent loaded word, but where a quark ends up or how, you know, what is what it is a part of depends mm-hmm. on the context, right? Mm-hmm. So everything depends on context. And so then you have to ask, where does context come from? Because otherwise everything would just be completely undifferentiated. Yep. So this is one of the things I found so fascinating about um, Matthew Pajot's concept of time and space. Because he says, and in, in saying this, Wolfram is in complete agreement with what Matthew Pajot says, and that is that space is made up of discrete part parts um but time in pajot's view is continuous 
And so he alludes to the idea that time is more related to chaos and space is more related to order. And the fact that time is continuous means that it's not differentiable. Um, there, there's no stopping points. And, and when I was reading the book, it became pretty clear to me that part of the problem with the way people are starting to think nowadays about things like that there is no gender binary, that it's all just this continuous fluid mm -hmm. series of potential genders that can be there. That's the problem with um, this continuity where there are no stopping points, where no choices have to be made. Right. right. Because in space, in order for there to be order, choice has to be made, but choice requires that there be stopping points. Right. Like photons are discrete, right? There mm -hmm. has to be differentiable points. And and when you when you're looking at all the quarks in the universe, all the standard model particles, they're not differentiable except for context. And so context is what separates them out. In a sense, I can kind of understand that in Wolfram's model, because when he starts talking about how all these atoms of space get built out as this hypergraph, multi-rulial, mm -hmm. multi-way thing gets grown, then they're each in their own context within this whole thing. Yeah. And each one has a specific context, and that context is made up of what the causal relationships are with everything around it. Mm -hmm. So, so there are what I'm coming to is that there are certain things that are basic units of reality, and one of those is context, one of them is relationship, one of them is proportion. Where where you land on the continuum is mm -hmm. an issue of a choice of proportion and value is like that because value says I'm moving from A to B. I'm moving from here to there because there seems like it's better than here. That's the only reason I'm moving there. So that better point, that value point, choices have to be made. Sometimes you can't, always have the the best value you have to make some other choice that's slightly less than best yeah stochastic process random yeah. walk biased yeah, yeah because other mm -hmm. things enter into the decision making process mm -hmm. right or obstacles yeah. get in the way mm -hmm. so there there has to be some place along the way where you can choose something that's not the ultimate which i think is why Peterson says that while you're on the way, you have to have this vision of the ultimate good as a guide star, mm -hmm. because you can't always choose the ultimate good in every choice that you make moving forward. But that guide star is always there to kind of keep you on this quality path. And I would go that guide star sits in the next level up of mm -hmm. irreducible complexity someplace. And somehow... Mm -hmm in order for it to communicate down to you, it has to cross that threshold back. And that's where the role of archetypes, the stories, the parables, somehow they tell us a higher truth 
that we're able to put into words a higher truth that we couldn't otherwise explain. Mm-hmm. And that's how we get the, the our guide stars. Anyway, yes, rifting a little more on the a symphony of choices over time. I, I got thinking that would be a good way to describe the Old Testament scriptures. It's a it's a compilation of stories that over time create a symphony. So, and I think that's what Jordan Peterson gets. And I could say, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson hears the music, he hears the symphony, mm-hmm. whereas his conversation partners like Sam Harris or recently um, Lawrence Krauss, they can't. Mm-hmm. Although I have to give some kudos to Krauss that when he hosted Jordan Peterson on his podcast, mm-hmm. he asked some really good questions that made Peterson talk about things he hasn't talked about before or talk yeah. about them in a new way. But I got frustrated with Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, he is a little frustrating, but but he did ask some good questions. And yeah. for the most part, he did listen, you know. So do you think that Peterson and Wolfram could have a, a generative conversation? Hmm. Or would you rather hear him talk to um, Walton? I, what, what What is that guy's name? John Walton? Oh, that's a different. That would be interesting. But. The one I'd really be curious of is, is Jordan, uh, Jordan Peterson and, and Nima or Connie Hellman. Oh, that yeah. I've, be, been, I've been pushing that on every comment thread. I they might find. just sit there and stare at each other. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or it might get really interesting either way. Well, I'm not. See, I'm not sure with all of these. I'm not sure that either one of them would be able to draw the connection about why they have an interesting connection. We mm-hmm. know because we're looking from the outside in. Yeah. listening to both of them and we have our own picture of what it's all about and so we know where the connection is it's in his concept of truth right right but if if nima just started talking about particle physics and string theory and all that you know, <laughs> yeah. i'm not sure there, there would be a whole lot of connection there but nima harkani hamid is one of the few physicists who's not afraid of the anthropic principle He's not afraid of that to talk about religious things, which um, that might might be an opening for him. Have you heard him talk about those things anywhere else besides in that one lecture? Not not the question morality um, that he brought up, and and I still I could tell by the way he's talking by his voice that he was very uncomfortable giving that one. But he does talk about naturalism in physics, and um, uh, he does touch on fine-tuning, anthropic principles, stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. that comes up in other lectures that if you hunt around, you can find. Unfortunately, most of his lectures, you need a graduate-level background in physics to just get through half of them. Yeah, I mean, I I was reaching my own I was reaching my capacity just on his uh, his theory on the the I can never remember if it's the fundamental morality of physics or the fundamental morality of fundamental physics, morality theoretical, fundamental. theoretical <laughs> physics. But on on a completely different note, you want to mm-hmm. dive into uh, John yes. Walton? Yes, uh-huh. because I believe that was Paul Onleitner. 
Yes. Uh-huh. He talked about he, he brought that up at about the 45 minute mark in his talk. Well, let's and I was see going, that. yeah, somebody um let's see if I can get my share screen to work. Um my first exposure. I'm gonna have to go at it through okay. your email because otherwise um many many years and i wanted to know what you meant when you said it yeah. the shape of reality um can you hear it so a lot of my thinking in this regard is shaped by john walton's work um the old testament scholar mm -hmm. most probably most well known for he's he's at wheaton university most well known for his like lost world series lost world of genesis lost world of adam and eve lost world of the flood um <clears throat> Walton's work on Genesis 1, even into Genesis 2 and 3, is about helping us think through Genesis, the, the, two, the two creation narratives, because they are really two narratives in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3. They're telling uh, stories about creation, but um, they're, they're focused on, on different things. For, for Walton, the, the story is really about you probably cut out um, any time. Okay. We need to think. Now, have you listened to any Walton? Oh, yes, a lot. Okay. He, I actually ran into, became familiar with John Walton before I ran into Jordan Peterson. He came out here to uh, Santa Cruz um, years ago to speak. And that's when I first encountered him. And it, I was just completely excited by. Um, his talk, because I've been bothered, you know, as, as someone who's in physics and trying to deal with the creation story, you know, there's the problem of religion and science, and it's it's a nut you can't crack. But John Walton's uh, take, it's the first time I've heard someone approach the understanding using things like Jungian archetypes. So, and so I've often wondered if George Peterson was familiar with John Walton's work. Mm. But a lot of people have assumed that if they can deal with the question of origins of life, um, evolution, that that would get over the hump with um, getting a, making the biblical story um, compatible with science. Uh, so I think there's a BioLogos, which is a website which has been mm -hmm. pushing that a lot, evolutionary creationism. But in physics, I realized that this, the second law of thermodynamics is what kills you. Um, there's no way that you can make the creation story as it's read today as a physics or a story, a science story. Um, make sense because physics the second law will come back and get you so even if you can explain evolution somehow uh, it doesn't satisfy john walton's take is that the creation story is not a science story and it should not be read that way and i got and it was excited because if you don't have to read the genesis creation story as a science story that really gets us christians out of a lot of uh, trouble. 
And well, I mean, science as it exists today didn't even exist as a, no, so, as a gleam in anybody's eye back then, right? <clears throat> so his take, and it's a word he uses a lot, was that we have to remember scripture was written for us, but not to us. And so we're accustomed to looking at the New Testament, reading it in terms of the, the original classic Greek, and in terms of the context of the, of the times. That makes perfect sense to us. So the, the fundamental question, why don't we read the Old Testament that way? And I think John Walton's, one of his specialties is ancient Hebrew. And so he was going back and looking at, uh, if I was to give the cliff notes, uh, the uh, creation story in terms of the ancient Hebrew as the words were used at the time. And in the context of, of how people saw the, the world around them at the time. And when you do that, you get a completely different story than, than we read it today. And so he got a lot of pushback and probably still does from the Christian community. And it was sad because in some ways, Jordan Peterson came along and has given somewhat the same message to the secular community and he's been warmly welcomed. So I hope I encourage some of your listeners to go listen to John Walton. Um, so on that note, uh, I guess that's about as much as I have to say. Yeah, we've, we've kind of come full cycle. Um, yeah. I still, I'm going to show you something. This is all the questions that I had for you. Oh my. <laughs> so we're going to have to get together again sometime. Or what I, what I really need to me. do is write this stuff down and make some orderly sense of it because I just have, it's very difficult to do research when you're limited to these YouTube conversations because mm -hmm. you don't have the text unless you take the time to make a transcription, which is mm -hmm. horribly time consuming. Even if you take the transcription from the, the even if you take the uh, transcription from the video itself, you have to get all the timestamps out just so you can make sense of what they're talking about. And it's just way too much time. So then you have to keep notes of, well, he said this on this particular video at this particular timestamp, and it's just all over the place. It's very hard to make anything coherent out of it. But, you know, over time, the, the picture is getting filled out in my head. So I have a better picture of what he's talking about and where some of the inconsistencies are, but also where some of the really beautiful images are that captivate my thinking. Mm -hmm just because they give me another picture of a way to think about yeah. other things, right? Um, so more for later. We'll, okay. I'll do that later. But um, this has been so great getting a chance to talk to you in the new year. And uh, um, any last words? Uh only, well, maybe on, on the John Walton thing. I think the reason why he, his work is so important is, and this is something I'd like to throw out to Paul Vanderclay, um, is that how we read scriptures is often started or indicated by how we read the first two chapters of Genesis. How you look at that tend to be a good indicator of how someone's gonna read the whole rest of the Bible. 
So I think it's very important to spend some time trying to understand those first two chapters of Genesis. Which is probably why Jordan Peterson's lecture series has been so, so yeah. widely watched, right? Millions mm -hmm. and millions of people have watched those first two episodes of his. Yep. Okay, well, I'm going to right. dig into John Walton a little bit more myself, although a lot of the people that I've been listening to lately have that same picture of, of the, uh, the first few chapters not being scientific, but, mm -hmm. but telling a different story. Mm -hmm. And uh, they certainly, if you go back and look at the old Hebrew, you, you not only get a different story, but you get something that's even deeper than science, I think, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, that's Especially that's when, you look in, when you look into the, the underlying meaning of what it means when it talks about the chaos or the void, you get a much bigger picture than anything that science can give us. So, yeah, so that, that would be a good question for Paul Vanderclay as a pastor is, when did our current interpretation of the Genesis story as being one of science come about because um, I had struggled a young physics person uh, Lutheran pastor introduced me to um, the work of Saint Athanasius it's called mm -hmm. On the Incarnation I think you can find it on the web it was written in the fourth century and he compares the three different creation stories the pagan the Gnostic and the Christian and it's really interesting is that his take on from the fourth century is probably the most modern take I've ever encountered. And it's not what we hear from the church now. In fact, he made this mm -hmm. statement that among the animals, God chose man for the special gift. And I thought, whoa. So clearly the early church did not read Genesis the way we, we traditionally look at it now so mm -hmm. when did the tra transition happen yeah I, I think a lot of it may have come at the division between the east and the west because mm -hmm. a lot of the the eastern church fathers um like someone had said to me in some of my commentaries on wolfram they said you need to go back and read saint maximus on the logoi because it's very similar to wolfram's theory oh okay yeah, so so I've been I don't have a book, but I've been trying to just look into whatever articles I can find on Saint Maximus and the Logoi. And these are obviously things that I have missed by being in the um, Protestant wing of things because I don't haven't been getting that kind of early church father teaching. But I do notice that in our church recently, first of all, a lot of the leaders are starting to get beards. <laughs> And they're starting to talk about the early church fathers. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a movement. I don't know how much of that has come about because of Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Pajot and how much of it's just organic, but there is a movement, at least in the church I go to, which is a non-denominational church. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because that's those first few centuries of the Christian faith are usually left out mm -hmm. of most of our our church background. And I, I think one of the reasons why is because it's so messy. Um, 
and it's it could get a bit ugly and so people just like we don't want to talk about that um, but it was the the period in time when our faith was growing and becoming what it is now and so it's important to go back and look mm-hmm. to see the forces that were at play and the decisions made and that's when I, I discovered that the classic Greek language of the time was actually richer um, literarily than our modern English. So that they were conducting debates at a level we can't even begin to appreciate. Oh, yeah. English. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I look back at the Greek, the the depth of what I'm reading just is exponentiates. It's really and, amazing. And the classic heresies that came and were put down. I see are coming full force again in the mainline Protestants. And I think, oh, yeah, I mean, when you talk about messy, I mean, what we've got right now is messy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not as deep a messy as the messy that they had back then. Yeah. But that's the, the old story. You, know, you forget your history and then you repeat it. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well that's that great. We'll have a, have a great week. I hope that, uh, I hope that you're, week gets better and better as time goes on we're in so. here and in uh, may 2022 be preferable to 2021 i guess yeah, we don't have, have any to remember choice to, at this point <laughs> yeah well take care okay and, and thanks for the conversation yeah, thanks bye now. thanks glenn bye-bye